Hello, this is Pastor Jordan Rimmer. Thanks so much for listening to uh, my sermon podcast and listening to the sermons online. Uh, It's a great blessing to get to share with you some of my sermons and for those of you uh, at my church to have you be able to catch them if you miss them. Uh, This past Sunday, I made a big deal about how if you miss a sermon on the book of Ruth, which I'm starting now, that you will miss out if you don't catch it. And then found out after church that my microphone didn't work. So I'm recording this sermon a second time in my office on Monday morning. So it may sound a little different, a little different feel to not preach it to a congregation. Um, But I didn't want people to miss out. So here we go. We are now in the church season called Lent. The word Lent simply means spring because it happens in the spring. It's the 40-day period leading up to Easter leading up to Holy Week. It is traditionally a solemn period focused on repentance as we think about how we are sinful and need Jesus to die for us. This is not meant to be morbidly depressing. Just experience the night of Lent so that when Easter comes, it's a bright morning with great joy and gratitude. For our Lent preaching, we will be turning back to the Old Testament, to a little book called Ruth. This is not a big theological book, although it has uh, a lot of theology in it. It's not a meaty set of teachings, but it does have a lot of meaty things to think about. It's a beautiful story of danger, love, and great themes of redemption and salvation. It is also a great book for thinking about how to study the Bible, and I, I hope along the way sort of point things out about how to read these old, old stories and apply them to the world today. I can give very little introduction to the book of Ruth as we're not really sure much about its history. We're not sure when it was written. Certainly after King David, uh, the book was written because King David is mentioned towards the end of the book. But we're not sure where. Some say even as late as the uh, exile and the return from the exile. Um, Some say that uh, the prophet Samuel may have written it in the time of David. That's a long gap, and we're not sure (coughs) who wrote it, and we're not sure at all uh, when it was written. This is actually one of the books that has been argued to be maybe the book of the Bible that was written by a woman, just because of the theme and the focus on uh, the women as the heroes of the story. Uh, But again, that's conjecture, and I, I think we really can't say too much definitively about who wrote it or when. So that's the introduction. Let's get to the story and let it capture us today. The book of Ruth begins by giving us a setting for the story. And if you miss the setting, you can't understand the book. This is a period when the judges ruled. This period is talked about in the book of Judges, which in our English Bible comes right before the book of Ruth because they're chronologically together. There's a description that is repeated in the book of Judges, and it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God uses all kinds of things to try to correct the moral chaos that's going on there. And judges like Samson, Gideon, or Deborah, to name a few more popular ones, all rise up, save the people from normally an occupying army, an army that's come in to give them trouble, and bring them back to the Lord. And then they sort of rule over the people. But they don't have a king, and it doesn't last. 
And actually, when they do get a king, it doesn't really last either. So this is a time of just moral chaos. Everybody does whatever they want. There's nothing to keep the people together. And God judges the people, sometimes with foreign armies, sometimes with famine. Famine is a symbol of God's punishment. It's where your land is laid barren and you take you have no ability to grow crops. Your fields will dry up and your livestock will be lost and there is nothing you can do about it. So we are introduced to these two people in the period of the judges, Elimelech and his wife Naomi. They leave their home in Bethlehem. Their motives are not given, but it is almost certainly not a good thing. To leave the land is to act like the prodigal son. You go to a foreign land forsaking your family and your friends. This is hard for us to understand, but for Israel, the land was the promised land. It represented God's covenant and commitment to them. In Exodus 6, 7, God says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from the, under the burdens of the Egyptians. Where does he bring them out to? To the promised land. Promised land was, was the, the claim. It was the symbol that you really were God's promised people. And your part of the land was the same part of the land your family had been on since you came to Israel. It was your slice of God's promise handed down in your family. And if you abandon your land, you abandon God's promise, and you abandon God. It is a decision to leave the community at a time when everyone needed each other's support. Abimelech and Naomi are abandoning their family and their friends in this time of need. And the land in a time of famine is vulnerable to enemy attack because your army is not well nourished. It's weak. What is even more telling about their decision is where they decide to go. They go to the nation of Moab. Moab is known as a very immoral place. Moab was the son of Lot born of an inappropriate relationship with his own daughter. It's an incestuous relationship. The prophets compared the nation of Sodom to the infamous, to the, the nation uh, of Moab to the infamous Sodom of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is not good company to be in. They worshipped a false god that required child sacrifices. It was expected in the community that some of our children were going to be sacrificed, were going to be killed to our God. Many times, the Moabites had had military conflicts with Israel. Israel did not like Moab. You understand? They were forbidden to marry them. They were not supposed to be around them. They were enemies. They were totally contrary to the things of God. And if Naomi and Abimelech were trying to get away from the moral chaos of Israel for moral standards, they would not have gone to Moab. This is not a place that is morally any better. It seems to be a rebellious act. We're going to leave God. We're going to leave people. We're going to go on our own. So they go to Moab with their two sons, and Elimelech there dies. Now Naomi has got to be devastated with the loss of a spouse, but she carries on. She has two sons to care for her and to carry on the family legacy. Her sons marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Of course they do, right? They're in Moab. Proximity is critical to love. Reminds me of the man who wrote his girlfriend a letter every day from war and came back to find she had married the mailman. 
This Let this be a warning to parents and grandparents out there. Be careful who your friends or who your children hang out with. Help them pick good friends because they are likely to be like and to marry those friends. So, of course, they go to Moab, they go to this rebellious place, and their sons marry Moabite women. The hope of the family is to have a male child. This seems strange to us, but then in those days, women could not own property. They could not hire workers. You had to have a man to carry on the line. But for 10 years, neither of the women have children. Do they just not conceive, or is it a string of miscarriages? We don't know. But just as famine is a sign of God's judgment, where your land will not grow new life, so too barrenness in your womb is seen as God's judgment. Then, tragically, Naomi's two sons die, leaving their mother left with nothing. You must understand the danger here. Women can't live on their own. They have no one to protect them or speak for them. They are in danger of being abused and taken advantage of. Women could not testify in court. So if a woman said that a man had done something to her, there was no way to prosecute that, no way to pursue that case, because she couldn't testify in court. And Naomi is in a foreign land with no family to care for her. It would have been difficult to go back to Israel. She has been gone for 10 years, and remember, she had rejected the place. Naomi could have another son. That would be the typical thing. If, a, if, a, if one of her daughter-in-laws had uh, lost, a, lost a husband, then the other husband would have had to help her get pregnant. But that is not possible at this point. Naomi even says it in her arguments. Do you mean that I should have a child and you guys wait till he grows old? No, that would have been silly. Furthermore, it would have been hard for these two girls to get married. They have a Jewish and Jewish mother-in-law and a sister-in-law to care for, plus nearly a decade of barrenness. They would have been seen as cursed. What husband would want a woman in those days that was proven to not be able to have children? No, these women are in grave danger. Their lives are now doomed to be perpetually begging or starving. Think how Naomi must have felt. Put yourself in her shoes. It is clear that God has abandoned you and punished you. In Naomi's own words, God has dealt bitterly with her and now left her without a hope. What would you do? Where would you go? But Naomi has heard that the Lord has visited Israel and delivered food. This is almost said in a contrast of sorts. As if the Lord has visited Israel but the Lord has not visited Naomi. She tells the girls to go back to their families. She has nothing to offer them. She is doomed, but they don't have to be. She says, go home, get husbands, and may God deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly to me and our dead husbands. So they weep. They weep together. The feelings of three funerals and years of trying unsuccessfully to have children come bubbling back. And this goodbye feels very much like another death, another funeral, as they all head to uncertain futures. They want to go with her, but she tells them to turn back. She says, no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. 
She says, she says, the Lord's against me. I'm cursed. Do not follow me. Go back. Orpah goes back. And she's not chastised for it. It's really the good and right decision. This is what we expected. We go back to your family. Go back to the house of your fathers. Go back where you have brothers to take care of you. The surprise of the story is the response of Ruth. Let me read it so you hear it again. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Such an amazing response from Ruth, this Moabite. She's basically saying, I'm not going back. I'll die with you if I must, but stop telling me to go back. I'm going with you. She is going to stick to Naomi, even if it kills her. And she uses the language of God's covenant. Remember the language I quoted from Exodus? I will be your God and you will be my people. Now here's what she says. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. See, this is really a conversion. While Naomi has moved away from God, Ruth chooses to move toward God. In the Old Testament, words and phrases are repeated to hint at the meaning. There's a word that's repeated over and over again in this passage. The word is shuv, shuv, and it's translated as return, turn back, go back, gone back, brought back. But it's actually just one word, and it, it can be translated like that, and it, it's done that, done that way to make the English more interesting. But it's one word, and really, it's the word repentance. See, in the Bible, to repent is to relent. We, we think of it as apologizing or confessing, but to repent is to relent. To repent is to go back the other way, to turn back or change directions. To give up your selfish, sinful ways that are taking you to the right. And to repent is actually to turn back to the left. This word is used 12 times in this chapter. 12 times. Now that is not an accident. Again and again and again, the author of this book is saying, this is a story about repenting, about relenting, and about turning back. This is the story of Naomi's turn to God. And Naomi, beaten down with, with nothing, returns to Bethlehem and returns to God. And Ruth returns with her to a place Ruth does not know and where Ruth, as a Moabite, will not be accepted. Hey, this is a very dangerous move for Ruth. She knows. She has to know. Naomi knows. She's going to be hated there. She's going to be hated there. But they return to Bethlehem. Bethlehem literally means house of bread. It's surrounded by harvest fields and lots of fields for livestock. This is where David will be shepherd someday. This is where Jesus will be from. This is where the sacrifices, the sacrificial lambs for Jerusalem are grown. And this is now where perhaps God's blessing might still fall for these women. The people recognize Naomi as she returns but she will not let them call her Naomi. Naomi means pleasure. But instead she says, call me Mara, which means bitter. For God has dealt bitterly with her, and probably she is at this point bitter with God. She said, I went away full, 
and God has brought me back empty. I call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Now, let me read the last verse of chapter 1 so that you can fully grasp the meaning this chapter has been bent towards. So Naomi returned, not just returned, she repented. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Notice in this little verse a couple of hints for us. First of all, she returned. Same word, shuv. She repented. She came back to God. And notice that she had said earlier that she had come back empty. But she hadn't come back empty. She had brought Ruth with her. Of course, Ruth doesn't seem like a blessing probably at this time. Now she, in the middle of having to beg for her life, has to take care of a Moabite woman in Israel. But she's not empty. She is Ruth. And the last verse also makes sure we don't miss the problem with that. It says, she is Ruth the Moabite who came from Moab. Now that is redundant, right? Moabite from Moab. Yes, we know that they came from Moab and she's a Moabite. Why well, say it twice? It's to remind us, it's to emphasize the problem that she doesn't fit, she does not belong, and is going to run into trouble here. But there's also a little symbolic hint of hope. They arrive in time for the barley harvest. If famine is a symbol of God's judgment, then harvest can be a symbol of God's blessing, favor, and care. Perhaps God has more in store for these women than begging and starvation. But unfortunately, that is where we stop today. We have journeyed home with them. What happens from there will have to unfold over the rest of Lent. But can you identify with Naomi? Where do you feel that God has dealt bitterly with you? Where have griefs and trials come at you in waves? Where are you bitter with God or with another person? And people will say, people will say to me, oh, I'm not bitter with God. And a lot of times they are. They just have learned to not talk about it and to ignore those places where they're bitter. But just because you ignore it doesn't mean you're not actually bitter. Where are those places where you have run from God or left your faith because you wanted to do your own thing? Who is the Ruth in your life? Who's the one that stands with you no matter what? Even if there is risk that you will take them down with you. Are you a Ruth for anyone? Who are you supportive and caring for? Who do you stand beside? And you're really blessed if you married your Ruth. You're really blessed if you married somebody who stands with you and who you can stand with. And I preached this sermon this week on a week where we need Ruth, where we need support and care. Another shooting has happened, and it's a shame that we're now at a point where these shootings are barely news. They're news for a couple of days, and then they're just simply a blip on the radar and another statistic because... We've had so many. And as soon as they happen, uh, political pundits from both sides start using the event to try to push their agendas. We say we care, but what will the response be? We need some Ruth. 
Because we live in a world that seems like God is in some way dealing bitterly with us. Now, I'm not sure that's true. I think the world is just a bitter, broken place. And we can go back and look at this passage and look at these events in light of the New Testament. Because we know that the nature of God is not to deal bitterly with us, but to take on bitterness for us. He is our Ruth who comes to a foreign land with us. He calls us to repentance, yes. But he also tastes the bitterness of the cross on our behalf. And we are thankful for Jesus today. And we live in a world that needs him so much. We must be Ruth in our world. We must be supportive and caring in a world that feels a lot more like Naomi right now. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that our journey with youth or with Ruth will be a journey that guides us to Lent, guides us to the cross, and guides us to your resurrection. May we find new life in the life of Ruth and in the life of Naomi. Amen.